All right. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Um, welcome to Ramadan Mubarak. Um, welcome to Saturday session. I think it's so weird. We only missed one session, but I feel like it's been so long and I really missed getting together. Um, so I'm just, I'm happy to be um, here again. And, um, you know, it's almost like when you, when you don't have a session like this, you realize how important and how much it means to you, um, you know, in your in your week and in your day, and you just you feel like there's a void. So it's nice to just be back together again. Um, and I hope everyone's having a, a, a beautiful Ramadan. Um, I just wanted to mention a few things. Um, first of all, um, I wanted to actually take a moment to um, pay tribute and honor um, someone who's really dear to the Muslim community um, in the United States, but particularly um, in Princeton. Um, it's um, Imam Suhaib um, Sultan, who was just, he created the Muslim Life um, Program at Princeton. He was a Muslim chaplain for many years um, and created uh, an incredible community and a very vibrant program. And we were invited there and, and we knew um, Imam Suhaib and his beautiful wife, Arshi, and their daughter, Radia. Um, and, you know, we're, we're part of that community and we're able to, um, you know, speak to, to uh, give a khutbah there, give lectures there, and just be with, with them. And they were amazing um, in what they were able to do. So Imam Sohaib, unfortunately, had, had been struggling with a very rare form of cancer, and he passed away yesterday. Um, so we were very sad to hear that, but I know that um, his legacy will live on for a long, long time. And um, the people there are um, fundraising for both his family and also, I think, his last wishes at, with regard to um, you know the, the work that he did there. So please, um, you know, donate if you can. Go to LaunchGood um, and search up Sohaib S O H A I B Sultan S U L T A N, and you'll find um, both of those um, those uh, initiatives. So, and please pray for him. He, he really was one of the few people who I think um, made such a huge difference. He touched so many lives and um, was just an inspiration. He knew that he had terminal cancer over a year ago. Um, I think at the time that he first um, was diagnosed, he, would, had, he was told he had like a very short window of time to live. Um, and alhamdulillah, he had a year to teach everyone who knew him what it meant to be confronting death, um, trying to um, do a lot of good with your community. He did um, a lot of writing um, and reflection on what it was to be facing terminal um, cancer um, and, and just how to um, worship and, and live life in the most beautiful way um, on this earth before he passed. So he, he was really an incredible example. Um, so anyway, I just, and, and I pray that his family um, will, have patience and you know um, a lot of family support. So, inshallah. Um, secondly, um, I wanted to ask. Um, I, I got a, a very um, painful email um, from someone who follows a Suli, and this was something that the Sheikh had talked about in uh, the khutbah yesterday. Um, there's someone who's been following um, us for years who has a 12-year-old daughter. Her name is Raya Zaman, and um, she has cerebral palsy and was hospitalized recently and is on a ventilator. And he sent a picture um, and he, you know, was writing um, and asking, um, you know, Grace, this is a personal request. Would you please request our beautiful and open-minded Basuli Institute members to pray for our daughter? We are requesting everyone to pray for her and I will attach a picture. Um, I hope this, this email reaches you. Um, she's been very sick um, in an ICU ventilator 
Um, she's been hospitalized since February, and he and his wife are always with her because she needs 20, uh, care 24-7. Um, but the, his wife actually went through two recent surgeries herself, and he's having health issues, and they have no immediate family members around, so they're, they're obviously in a very difficult situation. So um, please pray for them, and inshallah, especially during Ramadan, um, I really believe that prayers have um, you know extra power and extra weight, and inshallah, um, Allah will help them. And then, um, you know, also I think it's just important to think at this time uh, to underscore what the Sheikh was saying yesterday, to remember people like Ahmed Sabia, um, Salman al-Oda, the family of um, Yusuf al-Karadawi, and anyone who is suffering around the world because there's so many Muslims suffering. It's like makes your head spin. It just, you know, um, and we just need so much help. And um, inshallah, I hope that this is a time where our prayers will, will make a, a greater difference. Um, so, on you know, on that note, um, Ramadan obviously is a, is a time when people, you know, really reflect on how they can make a difference, um, what their legacy is. Um, it's when all the Muslim organizations um, ramp up their fundraising. Um, and so I, I wanted to, of course, share with you, you know, fundraising is one of these things that, like, I, I've never liked the idea of asking people for money or fundraising before the Usuli Institute, and I didn't like it when people would ask me for money. Um, but, you know, now I'm actually in a different situation in that I feel so passionate about what we do here that I feel like it's, it's not an embarrassment, but it's more of a invitation because I believe so much in what we're doing. And if you've been following um, the work and listening to the, the halakas and the khutbahs, um, I truly believe, like, if, if people allow me, I get very passionate and then I have to kind of pull myself back because I just start going off on, you know, on how, just, I really believe that the future of, the, of Islam is in this approach because we really emphasize beauty and critical thinking and humanism. And as you know, we talk about all kinds of things here that no one else in the Muslim community is willing to talk about. So just for an example, um, obviously I think people knew that a couple of weeks ago, the issue of the legislation in France um, about hijab um, was something that was you know, really broken here. I mean, this is the first place that I think any of us became aware of what was happening. Um, some of us were doing research. The media was not really even talking about it, but Dr. Abul Fadl highlighted it and spent a lot of time talking about this in the khutbah. Yesterday, you know, as we know, uh, separately, there have been so many issues with, um, you know, Black Lives Matter and racism, and it was interesting that on social media there were several people that were trying to track who in the Muslim community is talking about even, you know, racism and Black issues on, you know, at khutbahs. And as far as I know, we were the only ones that were actually taking that that topic head on. Um, and, and as people know, we talk about all kinds of issues um, in a very, I think, fresh and, um, you know, open-minded way. And um, so to me, as a convert, someone who chose to become Muslim during a time that is very difficult to be a Muslim, and that was before 9-11, and now, you know, I, when people are converting, and it's, it's actually quite miraculous to me that people, you know, despite all of the Islamophobia, continue to convert to Islam. And I've said before that I really believe it requires a divine intervention. It's one thing to convert, it's another thing to remain Muslim. And it's another thing to look around the community and ask yourself, okay, what community have I joined? Where do I look for support? 
where do I find like-minded people who actually are thoughtful and not afraid to tackle difficult issues and make me proud to be Muslim and help you know inspire the world with something different. I don't think you find that in many places, um, if at all. Um, and I'm so proud of the work that we do here. And I, I really, uh, you know, my dream and my hope is that more people will find this message. Um, and so when I, you know, come forward and I say, please support us, please support our work. Um, this is not because, you know, obviously we don't get paid for our time. We put all of our time and energy into this. We've, you know, spent all of our savings on the books in this library. I mean, we're just passionate about serving God and trying to spread this knowledge. Um, so it's not for our benefit, it's not for growing our, our you know, institute, but it's so more people can find you know, this beautiful interpretation of the Quran, this very rich um, you know, discussion of how the Quran actually is relevant to our life in our times, which I think I, have no, I didn't find in other mosque spaces before I, I met the professor. So um, I don't know what is more valuable than having Muslims connect with their own faith in a way that inspires them, makes them proud, makes them challenged, makes them think, and makes them push themselves to be better human beings. I think we do that here, and I think it's something that um, anyone that contributes to will have a share in blessings on the final day. So this is not about you know building your palace in Jannah. <laughs> it's not about you know planting trees or whatever. But I really believe that people who support knowledge have a very special place, and especially in these dark times when people just don't believe that Islam has anything to offer. So to that, um, we on um, if you come to our website at asuli.org, um, we have updated our donation page. So you can donate to Project Illumin, which is the ongoing process of you know this gathering, doing the halakas, because as you know, we live stream everything. We make all of our content free online, and it's there forever, so anyone can find it. Um, we don't charge for that, um, and we don't have any plans to charge for that. This is knowledge that will be out there forever. Um, and inshallah, unless we get a solar flare and it takes out YouTube and the whole, like, you know, <laughs> anything short of that is going to be there. So, um, and, you know, so if we want to support Project Illumin in this process of producing knowledge, um, you can donate there and we're still trying to um, complete our fundraising on that. Um, and in addition, we are working on preserving the library here, which um, if you have been following um, you know, we have the largest private collection of Islamic law sources, but uh, and on top of that, a huge humanist library. So it's got everything from comparative religion to ethics, philosophy, history, um, you know, gender studies. We have a huge Christian section, a huge Jewish section, um, literature. It's just like its own university. And this is the 100,000 plus book library that we just moved from California to Ohio. Um, and we're trying to preserve it in, in the most beautiful way. So we need um, help with bookcases and we need um, you know, all kinds of different things. So you can donate to Preserving Knowledge or the library. And lastly, our, our legacy of hopefully capturing all of this knowledge that we're producing and publishing it in a multi-volume work. So this would, as we've said, be the first complete comprehensive English language Quranic commentary in over 40 years. Um, and this, um, as you know, takes a lot of work. We, after we do these halakas, we transcribe them, we edit them, we, you know, transform them into something more, um, you know, polished citations, we add commentary. This is the goal, and we want to do this for the entire Quran. So this is a long-term project. Um, it's going to require a lot of hands on deck 
but also um, a lot of investment. So if you um, want to be part of that, we, create, we started this program called Adopt Asura. So if you want to have your name um, and associated with a particular Sora where, you know, anyone who benefits obviously from that knowledge, you get, you know, the, the blessings that go with that as well. Um, there's a way to donate um, and, and identify which Sora you would be interested in. Um, and, or, you know, if you're uh, just want to donate, you know, a little of anything, you know, we have so many beautiful people that will send $5 here, $10 there. And I consider these really touching like donations of love because a lot of times a lot of people who follow us are students that don't have a lot of money but um, they really believe in what we do and you know that is a really beautiful um, contribution um, and lastly we will also have a launch good presence um, so you know that we have had ongoing but it's easy to share you know a launch good link um, if people are, are um, signed up for the Launch Good Ramadan Challenge, which is where you put a little bit of money and they um, assign it to, you know, they, they donate a little bit for you every day of during Ramadan, then all you would have to do is indicate that we are one of the, um, the recipients that you would like your, your donation to go to. So just search Usuli and you'll find us there. So um, there are a lot of different, different ways um, to be part of of this program, and I, I just, um, I hope that you will be with us, and um, you know, and believe in this as I do, because I, I really hope that um, you know we can we can make a lot of difference, and that during Ramadan, Allah will will you know reward us even more generously for for our care for knowledge. So thank you again um, for being with us, and looking forward to another incredible halakha, inshallah. Oh, actually, one more thing. If anyone is interested, if anyone would like to volunteer their time to help us with the transcription process, the editing process, the writing process, anything like that, please send me an email and let me know because we would love to have people help and that would help us get through this project faster. Um, and we would be very grateful um, for your time. And it's a fabulous, actually, one of the favorite things I, I really love doing is transcribing, editing, and working with um, the text um, because it's a way to really ingest the knowledge and feel really close to it. So it's a, it's a special um, process. Oh, sure. <laughs> Should I? Yeah. Okay, so Sheikh suggested that I introduce the editor-in-chief. <laughs> His eyes just like... Um, okay, well, do you want to really embarrass Joe? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to say anything. Get up there, Joe. Okay, let me introduce you very briefly to one of the superstars here. Um, if you follow our, our um, my my weekly email, you have to come. You have to come sit here. This is uh, Dr. Joseph Linhoff. He's a PhD from University of Edinburgh. Well, and um, I just I actually this is a really good chance to. Um, you don't have to say anything if you don't want to. I don't want to say anything. Okay. <laughs> Joe, actually, but let me say, uh, Joe is a convert um, and uh, got his PhD at University of Edinburgh. He is one of the incredible superstars that is literally carrying the whole like transcription process. So when we um, finish this this like halakha, for example. Um, we send it to a professional transcriber and we get a raw transcription and from that someone needs to actually take the time to sit and massage the text, turn it from spoken word to written word, um, go in, clean it up, 
start you know working on citations thinking about you know what you're going to add to make it more of an academic text it's an incredible process and he's trying to stay on top of the two scores per week that we do so for example you know for Khan took what like 20 hours alone to do um, we have a couple of other people that are part of this process as well but when you literally have like suras coming at you that are six and seven hours and these transcriptions it's like literally trying to keep your head above water it's like a, a, a massive you don't, you you don't know. want to say something i have to say something see that you okay. something we got you up here gotta embarrass you <laughs> so so just to just to echo what, what what Grace said. We really do, this is an enormous project and we could really do with all hands on deck. Um, at this stage, what we're trying to do is take the raw Rev transcript and just polish the text. Average, we're looking at a Saturday halakha, we're looking at about 10 to 12 hours work. Some go more than that, Furkan, Zumar, they go more than that, but you're looking at about 10, 12 hours work. A Tuesday halakha, you're looking at about 8 to 10 hours work. Starting off, we have editorial guidelines, we will meet, I'll train you, everything you do, you send it to me, I send it back to you, There's, it's back and forth, it's back and forth. Um, the deadlines will go at your pace, if you can't do one a week, that's fine, do one a month. One a month would be enormously helpful. Um, we do, of course, have certain you know, expectations. If you say one a month, we'll expect one a month, and if you can't do it, let me know, exactly. You know, There's basic due diligence and that kind of thing. But if anybody can help, I, from the bottom of my heart, it would really, it would, for nothing else, just to give me a bit of headspace, that would be really appreciated. <laughs> but of course, for far more meaningful things like that, this isn't just going to happen through talking about it. We really need, if you're interested and if you want to, if there's any particular surah that really speaks to you that you really want to ingest, let me know and we can work on that together. But I'll be with you every single step of the way. I'll try and make it as, as easy and as painless as possible. Inshallah. Inshallah. So. Thank you. I'm going now. Okay. <laughs> Yay. So thank you so much. Um, it's it's an incredible team of people here. Honestly, everyone is is just like I say a, a superstar, and so I, I feel really blessed to be surrounded by incredibly bright, passionate, um, you know, just people who are so committed to what we're doing. And so please pray for everyone here. Um, help us to to get through this process, through this project. Um, we just we feel like um, every a bit of prayer will help us. It's it's a really important um, legacy that we're trying to leave behind. So thank you so much. Okay, happy now. You embarrassed Joe. <laughs> no, alhamdulillah. Thank you, Joe, for everything. Okay. Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen, Salatu Wassalamu Ala Muhammad Wa Ala Alihi Wa Ashabihi Wa Tawabi Ihsani Yala Yawmidi Lam Bashrah Bi Sadri Wa Yassir Bi Awli Wa Ahlam Uqdatan Bi Lisani Yafqan Qawbi Ya Rabbil Alameen Inshallah today we'll do Surat Al-Qasas There's a lot to talk about There are layers Layers in the message that are very important. Uh, but since uh, Grace jumped on the always uncomfortable issue of finances, I, I want to share with everyone um, 
the upcoming predicament that I haven't even talked to Grace about. Oh, no. Um, inshallah, come the fall, it looks like I would have to teach. Um, so I'll be teaching remotely at the law school and continuing the Quran harakas at the same time. Uh, this is because I don't have any leave remaining um, uh, unless there is a miracle and I can take medical leave. But medical leave is complicated. So um, teaching and doing the Quran halakas, uh, inshallah by, by the end of this process I'll, I'll, I'll end up being a martyr from exhaustion. Um, it was going to be very difficult. It's going to be very exhausting. But the the bottom line is that this happens because academics, if they academics either to to dedicate their effort at something that is not academic, and the Quranic tafsir is not considered academic work. It's not something that counts in your job as a professor. Um, it's considered extracurricular. Uh, you either have to retire with all the financial implications of retirement, or someone has to buy your time. Literally, someone has to give the university money so that you can take time off um, to do whatever you need to do. And as you guys know that initially when we started raising money for this, the idea was that we raise money to buy my time for a year. But as we were raising money, it became very clear that it is not the, 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 the amount of money that we were raising was not nearly enough to buy my time for a year. So the money went to fund students. The money that was raised primarily went to fund students. Um, so put quite simply, in the fall, unless there is a miracle, um, or unless there, there, unless there is a miracle and ironically, I get very sick so I can take medical leave, you know, so I, I get a horrible diagnosis. Uh, so I can actually get my medical leave. Or there is a miracle by we are able to raise money to buy my time in the fall so I don't have to teach and just remain focused on the Quran. Uh, in the fall, it looks like I would have to teach and I would have to do the Quran halakas. And that's going to be brutal. It's just you have no idea how brutal that's going to be. Um, and um, knowing with the state of my health, it, it's going to be, yeah, brutal. So, you know, because uh, I'm not funded by the Emirat, I'm not funded by Saudi, I'm not funded by the Israelis, I'm not funded by the Egyptians, um, I have to rely on the intellectual awareness and moral consciousness of the Muslim community. Um, 
So I'm sharing the problem so that we are all clear on the final day where things fall. Um, you know, my, my school is not going to give me time off so I can teach the Quran since I've used all my sabbaticals. Um, that's, you know, that's not their, their, their burden. And, that, and I wouldn't, you know, that, that's fair. They're a law school. Um, you know, I'm not going to the Hague to prosecute an international case or something like that. Things related to law that law schools are willing to fund. For them, teaching the Quran is just irrelevant activity as far as the law school is concerned. So, uh, and so far I don't have a diagnosis that would allow me to take a medical leave in the fall. I don't believe. Um, well, you know, it's if yes, I, I, maybe I do, but I, I, would, I would have to tell the doctors what, I would have to exaggerate how I'm actually Allah has chosen to make me feel better than I should feel. Uh, on papers, I should be I should be much much worse than I am, um, and I don't I, and I don't lie. So you know, if if a doctor told me from one to ten how what level of your pain, I'm going to be honest. And so, so anyway. So if you want to help buy my time and maybe uh, save me from shahada. Uh, martyrdom, uh, fine. If you don't, then I welcome martyrdom. Alhamdulillah. Um, and nothing is better than to be martyred in the course of pursuit of knowledge. There is no sweeter martyrdom than martyrdom of Adam. Um And I'm serious about this. I'm not, I'm not even joking. Okay. See, I told you, my wife doesn't even know. She's giving me looks like, oh my God. Yeah. But I, I came to that conclusion yesterday after receiving uh, correspondence from the law school uh, demanding to know what I'm going to teach in the fall. And I'm going to be teaching public international law. Right. Um, that's what they want me to teach. Yes, I will. She's saying, no, I will. I have to. Unless my time is bought, I have to. No choice. We'll have this fight after the Haqqa, inshallah. Everyone schedule it. We're going to be fighting after the Haqqa. <laughs> Do you want to fight for 20 minutes or 25 minutes? Okay, 25. Okay. Now, with that wonderful introduction, if, if you guys want me to fight longer with my wife, tell me. I'm willing to go 30 minutes, but after that I have to go back to reading. Uh, but if you want me to fight shorter, appeal to her. You know. But I am teaching public international law. There's no choice. No ifs, ands, or buts. Unless my time is bought. Or unless I get sickly ill, uh, deathly ill. Um, like the migraines return and the stomach aches return and all the horrible zift pain return. Okay. Surat al-Qasas. 
Surat Al-Qasas, I don't think a lot of people realize what role Surat Al-Qasas has played, even historically, in Islam. Um, as we'll see, uh, Surat Al-Qasas doesn't just play a role at the time of the Prophet it plays a role well beyond that in some of the critical moments of Islamic history. And if you look at the traditional tafsir, um, you don't get it. If you look at the traditional tafsir, they tell you that Surah Al-Qasas tells the story basically of Musa alayhi salam, the prophet Moses, and has a, 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 a transition from the story of the prophet Moses to a very short mention of the story of Karun, who is reportedly Moses' cousin, although it's not clear whether he was a cousin or, or a distant relative. And then from that, a conclusion to the surah which comforts the Prophet and in traditional tafsir, that's what um, you track. But what is missing, and again, we go back to the methodology that we've developed to understand well, why Surah Al-Qasas is Surah Al-Qasas. Why is it a surah in the way that you have in the Quran? And what message is it relating, other than telling us a story. And of course, the Qasas means the story. But what is the significance of a story told uh, in a surah called the story? Remember that the Quran tells the story of, for instance, Yusuf, Joseph, salam. And that surah is named after An-Nabi Yusuf But Surah Al-Qasas is very interesting because we do have very early reports. There were proposals to name Surah Al-Qasas Surah Musa. And ultimately that effort was not successful the earliest Muslim community did not accept the idea of calling Surat Al-Qasas Surat Musa, but instead thought that it is more fitting to call it Surat Al-Qasas. And that's a very interesting trail that we should pursue and follow and investigate. So, first, Surah Al-Qasas is revealed 
after Surah Maryam, after Taha, after Dukhan, after Shara. And after Shara, you have Surah Al-Namr, and then after Surah Al-Namr, you have Surah Al-Qasas. So that would mean that Surah Al-Qasas is number 47 in Revelation or so, for maybe 46 or 47, but most likely 47 in order of Revelation. You remember that when we talked about Surah Al-Shara, we understand that the Prophet is informed or is educated, and of course Muslims generally, about seven different forms of social failure. And that education, plus the seven different forms that we talked about, uh, also the role of propagandists and the, the those who spin information, those who spin data. And if you reflect on Surah Al-Shara and Surah Al-Naml, which we have not discussed, you know that there is a major event that is going to unfold. It is as if the Prophet and the community of Muslims effectively as if they are prepared to deal with the world, not to deal just with their personal journeys as Muslims, but to take on the entire world and the ailments of humanity. And in fact, this will eventually rise to the level which the Quran will reveal itself and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will be telling Muslims, do you see the covenant that I gave the Israelites? Well, guess what, Muslims? Now you are the bearers of that covenant. And as the bearers of that covenant, you bear the obligation and the burden of being God's witnesses upon humanity. And that will take place in Surah Al-Baqarah. But if you fail in your task as bearing witness upon humanity with all that entails, and as we'll see, it entails a lot because you cannot bear witness for God upon humanity unless you are at the height of the ethical curve. So unless you are ethically at the forefront of humanity. If you are ethically retarded, your, 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 your witnessing is invalid. It's of no relevance. How could the non-ethical or unethical bear witness upon 
either an ethical success or an ethical failure when it doesn't have the capacity to understand either ethical success or ethical failure. While as we will see in Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah explains to Muslims that the Israelites were given that job and they ultimately failed. And that now Allah is replacing the Israelites with Muslims, but Allah also tells Muslims, if you fail, I will replace you as well. But this is all in the future. This is all to come. And as we saw Taha and Dukhan and Shara is prepping Muslims for this great transformation at a time that they know that they are being called upon to transform but they don't know why. Iqqasas has to be understood in that context. Because of all the sore, of all the sore, it causes comes and demands a certain type of transformation that requires a level of ethical conscientiousness and ethical diligence. that would, in the language of the Qur'an later on, in fact qualify Muslims to be witnesses, witnesses upon, or bearing witness upon humanity. But also, critically, what follows Surah Al-Qasas is Surah Al-Isra. So, Really, in, in remember, there's we had Taha, we had first Maryam, of course, but then we had Taha, then we had Dukhan, then we had Shara, and then we'll have a Naml, and then we'll have a Qasas, and right after Qasas is an Isra. So, a Qasas is the last opportunity for those early Muslims to transform themselves to bear the message of Surah Al-Isra. Surah Al-Isra is a point of demarcation and a point of departure. And as we know, many Muslims couldn't handle the message of Surah Al-Isra and reneged. They apostated. But everything is it's as if you are prepping people to get the message, to receive the message that Surah Al-Isra will deliver in the hope that they will rise to the occasion instead of folding, as so many human beings do. Now, some of you might be tempted to say, but listen, you know, I don't, ha I don't have any plans on apostating. Sure, many of us don't have plans to apostate. But many of us close up when we are confronted with the challenge of transformation. When Allah says, transform yourself, 
we check out. We effectively say to ourselves, well, I'm good enough the way I am. And this is too challenging, so I'll just zone out. Now, it's up to Allah whether Allah considers this a form of apostasy or not, that zoning out, that sort of intellectual zombieism that besets so many people, where they are called upon to transform, and instead of transforming, they become mental zombies. They just want to do whatever they do, whatever they're accustomed to doing, and exactly like Surah Al-Qasas says, they just want to follow their habits and their traditions. And they don't want to be challenged beyond that. Whether Allah is going to consider this a form of apostasy or not, that's up to Allah. But there is no question that it's a cop-out to say, well, I'm not like those people who, after sort of Asra apostated, uh, it, it's a, uh, it, it could be a distinction without a difference. A distinction without a difference. Because as Surah Al-Qasas tells us, it is very much about substance and not the form. Now, the other thing about Surah Al-Qasas is that will notice that it focuses right away on Musa. And the Prophet Musa السلام, of all the Prophets is mentioned the most in the Quran. He's mentioned 136 times. And his story is told repeatedly in a number of surah across the Quran. In Taha, we have a little bit of the story of Musa. In Shara, we have a little bit of the story of Musa. In Al-Baqarah, we have a little bit of the story of Musa. And in every time we confront the mention of the Prophet Musa, it is in the context of other stories that the Quran is saying, telling. But Surah Al-Qasas comes in and focuses exclusively on Musa. That demands our attention. That warrants our careful attention. Why does it focus exclusively on Musa? Why, when the Quran mentions the Prophet Musa alayhi 136 times, do we need this concentrated narrative at that time about the Prophet Musa So that's another thing to keep in mind. Finally, Surah Al-Qasas comes at a very difficult juncture in the life of the Prophet When Surah Al-Qasas is revealed,
the Prophet ﷺ lost his uncle. And if you remember the story, the Prophet pleads with his uncle to, to say the Shahada before his death. And his uncle refuses to do so. And according to various reports, his uncle says that, you know, although I believe you, Muhammad, I believe you, but I cannot say the Shahada because I will not have it be said that I took the Shahada before death because I was scared of death. So, The Prophet's uncle, Abdul Muttalib, who was the Prophet's protector, and he saved the Prophet and the Muslim community of the worst and most egregious and extreme form of persecution. But he was clearly a man anchored in the traditions and customs of his age. And he worried very much about his image in his life and after his life. You might even say the optics, the optics mattered much more for him than the substance. If these reports are accurate, then although he knew that the Prophet was truthful and that this message was truthful, he would not break with tradition. He could not go against the weight of the generations that came before him that established the standards for what is honorable and what is not honorable. So in other words, what, what he deemed honorable or dishonorable required a transformation from dependence being founded on the culture he grew in to being founded upon his relationship with Allah. And that's something he wasn't willing to do. But the death of Abdul Muttalib was crushing for the Prophet The Prophet loved his uncle very dearly and losing him was a severe emotional blow. But also it was a blow to the Muslim community because now the level of persecution quickly escalated after the death of Abdul Muttalib. But then, shortly after the death of Abdul Muttalib, in some reports they say a month, other reports say three months, the Prophet is struck with the second major blow. And that is the loss of Khadijah. And Khadijah was the Prophet's soulmate and companion 
from the beginning of the Dawah, from the beginning of his prophecy, until that point, what you become very aware of very quickly, that there is hardly anything that transpired in the Prophet's life, without consulting with Khadija. Khadija was not just um, a, 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 a marriage of convenience. Khadija was a soulmate. And we see him, we see the Prophet constantly going back to Khadija on event after event after event. She is involved in the day-to-day occurrences. She is the Prophet's emotional support. And then she is also, has become a mother figure for the entire Muslim community. And as we know that she, as the Muslim community suffers persecution, she spends her entire wealth upon helping the the indigents of the Muslim community and especially like Abu Bakr she spends so much money in buying slaves and freeing slaves and so for the Prophet to be undergoing this call for transformation after having lost his uncle and lost his wife and also lost his male son that was born to his marriage with Khadija, um, it is a very difficult time. So difficult that that month, in, in that year in Islamic literature was called Am al-Huzn, the year of sadness. And it was called the year of sadness because of all these tragedies. And Surah Al-Qasas is dropped by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the lap of the Prophet right in the middle of all these unfolding events. So you can imagine that here is a surah, here is God's speech to a man that is going through true challenges, a broken heart, many disappointments. With the death of his uncle, the level of even public social public insults directed at the Prophet increased dramatically. So we have reports, you know, right after Abdul Muttalib dies, that they start pouring sand on his head, they throw mud at him, they throw garbage at him, children are, are made to follow him in the streets of Mecca, uh, uh, jeering and teasing and whatever ch- children do to, to uh, annoy someone. Um, so all of it escalates 
And this is also important to un for understanding Surah Al-Qasas. You, you can't try to understand the Surah without looking at all the circumstances that surrounded the revelation of the Surah and looking into how that Surah was received at that time by the Prophet ﷺ and by the early Muslim community. First Surah Al-Qasas, we know that it is among the Tawasin. And as we've talked about before, that it begins with Ta'asin Meem. And we've discussed the Ta'asin Meem and the family of Surah that are known as the Tawasin. Tilka ayatu kitab al-mubin natlu alayk min naba'i Musa wa Fir'aun bilhaqqi liqawmin yu'minun. And then immediately, these are the signs of the clear book, like what usually follows Taqsin Meem. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gets to the subject, to the topic right away, to the point right away. We recite you in truth some of the account of Moses and Pharaoh. For people who believe. So, especially when the Quran starts this way, it's as if saying to believers, not to people who the Quran is telling them to believe, but to people who already believe. It's as if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling people who already believe. Pay attention. We are going to tell you a story. And pay attention to the message conveyed by the story. And the beginning is jarring. If you reflect on it, it's a, it, it conveys everything just in the very beginning and very first salvo of the surah. Inna fir'awna ala fil ardi wa ja'ala ahlaha shi'a yastad'ifu ta'ifatan minhum yudabbihu abna'ahum wa yastahyi nisa'ahum إنه كان من المفسدين ونريد أن نمن على الذين استضعفوا في الأرض ونجعلهم أئمة ونجعلهم الوارثين ونمكن لهم في الأرض ونري فرعون وهامان وجنودهما منهم ما كانوا يحذرون Speaking, speaking in the present tense about things that occurred long ago, 
القرآن إن فرعون على في الأرض that expression it's not that فرعون just exalted himself but that the Pharaoh had amassed power has actually has actually exercised what we in our language they would say has exercised hegemonic power has been able to influence the lives of people in ways that truly demonstrate the ways that he saw himself to be entitled to power. And the way that he had privileged himself with power. This is, again, one of these remarkably profound expressions that the Quran gives us that requires a lot of reflection. How did the Pharaoh turn people into factions? Turning people into factions was part and parcel of the despotism and the hegemony of the pharaoh. And how do you turn people into factions? And what turns people into factions? Well, what turns people into factions, if you have a caste system, and there are superior caste and an inferior caste, if you have a class system, and there is a superior class and an inferior class. What turns people into factions? If you have a racial system, and there is a superior race and an inferior race. And subhanAllah, with the Pharaoh, all of that existed. There was a caste of those who are touched by the claimed divinity of the Pharaoh, those that, because of their relationship to the Pharaoh, were, were able to claim a semi-divine status vis-a-vis -vis other people. Classism was part and parcel of most of the pharaonic systems of government as it was of the feudal system of governance in, in medieval times anyway but it, Egypt, in, in, the, in Egypt it wasn't so much feudalism as it was a massive intricately organized bureaucracy that defined bureaucratically who belongs to an inferior class and who belongs to a superior class.
and in inferior class you could be um, literally drafted into a service of the state where you are performing very dangerous work for very your class defined even what type of home you can live in, what type of decorations you can have in your home, where you can shop, where you can bathe, where you can go to the bathroom. Your, your class, bureaucratically defined class, defined so much. But the pharaoh also had a well-known racial system. The Israelites were among those who were held in Egypt as an inferior race to Egyptians. But there's another thing about the Shia, the factions, that our ancestors understood even better than, than us. And that is the nature of despotism itself makes people compete to gain the favor of the despot. And the way that you gain the favor of the despot is to perform to the despot. How do you perform? Well, you can try to convince you the despot through various narratives stories, stories, and rumors that you are valuable and other people are not trustworthy. The nature of despotism is that people conspire against each other as people compete to get close to the leader and by the very nature of that system it gives birth to sharp factions at the same time that Surah Al-Qasas is warning the Prophet about this Note that shortly after Surah Al-Qasas, the Prophet, the Qur'an will underscore to the Prophet that the way he should conduct his affairs is through Shura. Not a system that promotes factionalism, but a system that promotes participation and consultation. This is no small deal. Because if the prophet would have run his affairs through an oligarchical system, through an oligarchy, it would have been impossible for the Islamic message to achieve the success that it did achieve. So, from the very beginning of the surah, we are warned about a despot who, in order to maintain despotism, broke people, 
uh, uh, divided people into a system of factions and classes, some of which then are superior to others, some of which are closer to him than others, and that in which these factions feed upon each other. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alerts us to not just then this issue of factionalism or Shia, but that there is a systematic istidhaf, a systematic oppression against a group of people who we will know, who we know are the Israelites, a people defined by lineage and race. And you actually find some interesting stuff in the tradition about uh, the rather odd ways that the um, Egyptians try to define who's a pure Egyptian and who's an Israelite. I mean, a lot had to do with the shape of the nose, which was very strange. Or the belief that Egyptians are tall and the Israelites are short. I mean, I, I am sure a lot of people suffered numerous injustices uh, in the sense of being considered one way or the other. Because, of course, these methods were not exactly scientific. But a lot depended on rumors and narratives. In other words, a lot depended on Qasas. Are you getting this? A lot depended on the stories that people are telling about who is an Israelite, who's an Egyptian, and so who should be a slave and who should not be a slave. But not just that, but the stories that people tell have resulted in another disaster. Because reportedly the Pharaoh had a dream and when he went and asked people about the meaning of the dream, people who are competing to be close to him and people who don't care about the suffering of other people, they told him that the dream means that the Israelites are a threat to his throne. These stories, and again we are told that there were widespread stories that the Israelites must be treated like garbage, otherwise they constitute a threat to the Egyptian ruling elite. A decision was made that male-born babies would be killed. Some stories say that they, one year they would kill the male-born babies and then the following year the male-born babies would be enslaved 
Um, some stories said, no, they just killed the male-born babies for a period of 10 years or so. And A, because eventually there were no males, all the males either had been enslaved, um, drafted into state service, into dangerous tasks, or outright executed, or ran away. Horrible things happened with women. Sexual assaults, but also that the state, the Israelite women, had a very difficult time making a living because there are no males. And the state then licensed them or told them that we will license you to be prostitutes. And we will tax your prostitution. So is both a sexual assault and it's also forcing the women into situations where they can only make a living by prostituting themselves. In one area, a horrible, horrible, terrible picture of what human beings can do to each other and what narratives, irresponsible narratives, can generate among human beings. If you take this to our modern age, think of the Qasas, that the Israelis said about Palestinians when they occupied their country. The Qasas that they said about Palestinians is that Palestine is a land without a people. Why is it the Qasas? Because it is a story that is completely untrue. But you spin the story and you believe the story and the story produces an enormous amount of suffering. And the same thing, a factionalism, Shia, and Estadaf, there are the settlers who take Palestinian lands and Palestinians who are denied citizenship and denied any status if they decide to stay in their home are inferior by definition to anyone that comes with Israeli citizenship. SubhanAllah, it's amazing. But even take that same narrative and think of the Pharaoh in Egypt today. The Pharaoh in Egypt today, whenever he wants to tell you that someone should be an enemy, he says what? They're Ikhwan. Anyone 
who opposes the pharaoh in Egypt today is Ikhwan. You, even if you're Christian and you oppose Sisi, you're called Ikhwan. If you are the most secular human being in the world and you oppose Sisi, you're Ikhwan. If you are mildly religious and you oppose Sisi, you're Ikhwan. Again, factionalism. If you are categorized as the faction of Ikhwan, you are subhuman. You can be arrested, you can be tortured, anything can happen to you. You don't count. So, subhanAllah, it is, it's in just one ayah, the Quran alerts us to a human condition that is most dangerous and at that time of tragedy and hardship, Allah chooses to tell the Prophet, pay attention to this. Allah didn't say to the Prophet, pay attention to, think about your dead wife or your dead uncle or your dead son. I'll tie this later on. Okay. And... At the same time that we are given this stark picture, Allah talks in the present tense about things that transpired in the past and says, we desire to bestow favor upon the oppressed in the land and to raise them out of their oppression so that they will indeed become the inheritors of power and they will turn the tables upon their oppressors so that the worst fears of the oppressor will be realized. If you're a Muslim at the time of the Prophet and this is the revelation that you're receiving at this time, at the time that they were receiving it, and you're saying, oh, okay, so Allah wanted to liberate the Israelites. If they dealt with the Quran the way we deal with the Quran, they would have completely missed the point. So let's go on and then we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this point. Okay, so that's the introduction. After that introduction, Allah starts telling the Prophet the story of Moses in the most comprehensive way that it's been told in the Quran and will be told in the Quran. And interestingly, the story starts with Umm Musa, his mother. Again, because our ancestors took the Quran far more seriously than we do, 
Notice it says, وَأَوْحَيْنَا إِلَىٰ أُمِّ مُوسَىٰ أَنَا يُرْضَعِيهِ وَأَوْحَيْنَا I'm just interested to see how they translated it. Oh, they re we revealed, okay. We revealed to the mother of Moses. Now, our ancestors paused at this and said, but those who receive wahy should be prophets. Is it possible for a non-prophet to receive a wahy, a revelation? And there is a big debate about this in the tradition. Those who said, no, she received the message, but it wasn't a real revelation. Because if it was a real revelation, then we would, she would have to be considered a prophet. And a minority view that said that Umm Musa was a prophet. The majority said she wasn't, a minority said she was. But Umm Musa will play a very critical role. We know practically nothing about Musa's father. But that's uh, it, it, when you draw the parallels with Surat Maryam, it's very interesting. Okay, so Musa is born and she is worried about the Israelites were hiding their, their babies. According to reports that they had an underground for trying to save their babies. Do I put Musa in the underground maintained by the oppressed Israelites or do I do as the revelation that I received or the message I got of putting him in the Nile and letting him float to his fate. Just a baby in the Nile, anyone that finds that baby would not necessarily think it's an Israelite because you can't really tell whether a baby is an Egyptian or an Israelite. And whatever her form of revelation, and you get a lot of reports about how she received that revelation, whether it was actual Gabriel or a dream or a, or a voice she heard or whatever. But she decides that what Allah wants is for her to put him in a, in, in a basket in the river. Right after she does, and she sees her baby floating away, she freaks out. And she nearly weakens. And nearly starts screaming for people to help her retrieve the baby. She said, even if I take the risk that they find out that this is an Israelite and execute him, at least I can give my child the dignity of a burial. 
rather than just sending him into the river, not knowing whatever becomes of my child, whether my child is going to drown or be picked up by someone. A real heart-wrenching moment for a mother and a real challenge of a real sacrifice. We often talk about Ibrahim and the, the sacrifice, but look at Moses and the mother. And the way that Allah comments on this Her, her heart became literally as if emptied of anything but thinking about Musa and his fate. It's when you upset, you are so overcome by sorrow that you can't think about anything else. But you are obsessively thinking about the one thing that has broken your heart. And then the second act of divine support that Allah, although Allah doesn't tell, choose to tell us exactly how, but Allah comforts her and aids her with strength so that she does not betray the fact that she's the one that put the baby in the river. And again, you get in the tradition a lot of reports about what was the form of the comfort and whether it was some form of revelation and whether that means she was a prophet or she wasn't a prophet and, and so on, so forth, so and so on. But all of it, I mean, is... None of it is, we can say, is, is of spectacular authenticity. So it's all part of the Qasas. It's all narrations that we are receiving. But what we know from Allah is the mother's sacrifice and the mother's heartbreak. And that Allah responds to the mother's heartbreak. And that is no small deal. And Allah responds to the mother's heartbreak by something that is miraculous. Not just comforting her, but allowing the sister to track what becomes of the baby Moses and that in fact that he is picked up by agents of the palace. And as you probably know, that the baby refuses when refuses to drink milk from any wet nurse until the 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 folks who found him, Pharaoh's wife, as we'll we'll talk about in a second. Uh, starts fearing that the baby is going to perish and she sets a reward for anyone who would lead them to a wet nurse that would actually be able to feed the baby. And of course, the sister intervenes at that point 
and says, I know a wet nurse. And in comes the mother to become Moses' wet nurse. Now, what's really interesting is that the mother's role doesn't end there. But in fact, Moses, remember, Moses is going to be raised in the Pharaoh's palace. And he is not raised as an Israelite. He is raised as an Egyptian. How does Moses know he, in fact, he is in fact an Israelite? not an Egyptian, that he belongs to the oppressed class, not to the class of oppressors. It's because of the relationship that he maintained with his mother in secret. So you find in the tradition a lot of reports that after breastfeeding him, till the age of four or something like that, that the mother remained in his life initially as a maid. But eventually she stops coming to the palace, but Moses sneaks out of the palace and meets with his mother in secret, where she tells Moses that I am actually your mother I'm not your maid, and tells them about the plight of the Israelites in Egypt and what the Pharaoh is doing to the Israelites in Egypt and transforming his consciousness through that continued role. Without her, Moses would have grown up in the palace just as an Egyptian because the Pharaoh's wife treated him as her son. Now, note this most remarkable Quranic verse, verse 8. فالتقطه آل فرعون ليكون لهم عدوا وحزنا إن فرعون وهامان وجنودهما كانوا خاطئين They pick Moses from the river They pick this child thinking it is the most insignificant. In fact, the Pharaoh sort of mocks the idea that his wife is so attached to this baby. But there is a message here that in this most mundane act, most simple act, a child raised in a, in, a, in a context in which you would think this 
can have no destabilizing effect on the pharaoh. In fact, it is the seed for the destruction of that oppressive order. Don't take this as, well, oh yeah, but this is a prophet and this is a miracle and splitting the seed. Reflect on what Allah is telling you about the nature of time and change and transformation and oppression and justice. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. وقالت امراه فرعون قره عين لي قره عين لي before before we uh, i apparently was spoken i said the uh, prophet's uncle abdul muttalib and of course it's it's abu talib not abdul muttalib um, so just take note وقالت امرأة فرعون قرة عين لي ولك لا تقتلوه عسى أن ينفعنا أو نتخذه ولدا وهم لا يشعرون. This is verse 9 where prophets, the Pharaoh's wife says don't kill the baby maybe we can adopt him as a child. وأصبح فؤاد أم موسى فارغة إن كادت لتبدي به لولا أن ربطنا على قلبها لتكون من المؤمنين verse 10 where Allah describes Moses' mother's heart as become like literally uh, vacuous it, it, it It is a very powerful description of sorrow and angst and grief. وَحَرَّمْنَا عَلَيْهِ الْمَرَادِعَ مِنْ قَبْلِ فَقَالَتْ هَلْ أَدُلُّكُمْ عَلَىٰ أَهْلِ بَيْتٍ يَكْفُلُونَ لَكُمْ وَهُمْ لَهُ نَاصِحُونَ فَرَدَدْنَاهُ إِلَىٰ أُمِّهِ كَيْ تَقَرَّ عَيْنُهَا وَلَا تَحْزَنْ وَلَا تَعْلَمَ أَنَّ وَعْضَ اللَّهِ حَقٌ وَلَكِنْ أَكْثَرَهُمْ لَا يَعْلَمُون This is verse 13, when it's, uh, Allah says, and we returned Moses to his mother to suckle him so that we can comfort her, bring her comfort, and deal with her sorrow. And then, وَلَكِنْ أَكْثَرْهُمْ لَا يَعْلَمُونَ That is as if Throughout Surah Al-Qasas, Allah will be telling us, as in verse 13, that Allah works in creation and is directly involved in this creation. But most people do not know, or most people forget, or are unaware of this. Now, so in the interest of time, وَلَمَّا بَلَغَ أَشُدَّهُ وَاسْتَوَأَتَيْنَاهُ حُكْمًا وَعِلْمًا وَكَذَلِكْ نَجْزِي الْمُحْسِنِينَ 
ودخل المدينة على حين غفلة من أهلها فوجد فيها رجلين يقتتلان هذا من شيعته وهذا من عدوه فاستغاثه الذي من شيعته على الذي من عدوه فوكذه موسى فقضى عليه قال هذا من عمل الشيطان إنه عدو مضل مبين قال ربي إني ظلمت نفسي فاغفر لي فغفر له إنه هو الغفور الرحيم قال ربي بما أنعمت علي فلن أكون ظهيرا للمجرمين So this is now verses 15 and 16 where Moses grows up in the palace the Quran tells us and he is taught something we know that Moses achieved an education we say it's very interesting that literacy comes from the fact that he's raised in the palace as the Pharaoh's son but his consciousness as being a member of or belonging his identity belonging to the class of the oppressed rather than the oppressors um, comes from his mother and his relationship to his mother. And in verse 15, you notice that it says, he entered the city Hina Ghafla. The study Quran translates it as entered the city at time of heedlessness among its people. The expression Hina Ghafla, that he enters the city at a time when he's not seen and people don't notice him. And of course there's discussion as to why. Is it that he enters the city at a time that where um, the stores are closed and the streets are empty because it's off business hours or is it that as a member of the palace he's not allowed to go to the city and roam around and mingle with the commoners and that he sn sneaks off from the palace he exits the palace without permission and sneaks off to the city It's more likely that it's a second rather than the first. Although, you know, you, you, you read a lot about, about that. And some of it, of course, goes back to what the Torah says. But interestingly, again, the difference between what the Old Testament says about Moses and what the Quran says about Moses is what is most striking. It's not the similarities, but the differences. In the Torah, Moses is on a tirade as an Israelite. He, he doesn't see the Egyptians as entitled to any rights. He, his entire message is 
thoroughly embedded in being an Israelite. In the Quran, his message is about Allah and part of his relationship with Allah is to liberate the oppressed. With other differences that I'll point out to you. So he goes to the city and he finds there is an Israelite fighting with an Egyptian. According to most reports, the Egyptian that the Israelite was fighting with was someone who worked as a cook in the Pharaoh's palace. And uh, that um, fellow had bought um, groceries in the market and then has commanded an Israelite that he encountered to carry the groceries as a servant. And the Israelite refused to carry the, the, the groceries, so the the Egyptian was threatening the Israelite that he's going to inform on him and that he's going to get into trouble. Moses sees the situation and his blood boils. is outraged at the way that the Israelite is being treated and he pushes the Egyptian, but Moses reportedly is, was a very strong man. In the tradition it says that he had the strength of ten men probably an exaggeration, but he was just strong. And whatever way that Moses pushed or struck that Egyptian fellow, it kills him. In the Torah, there is no remorse for killing the Egyptian fellow. In the Torah, Moses feels entitled to kill the Egyptian. And in the Torah, he buries the body of the Egyptian in a secret place so it won't be discovered. In the Quran, as you can tell from the text, he is immediately remorseful. And he realizes that he lost his temper and he struck a person and he unintentionally killed him. And that this is something demonic. This is, comes from shaitan, anger itself. And he vows in the Quran, but not the Torah, he vows to Allah that from there on, whatever he does, he will not be zahir للمجرمين, meaning he will not aid or support or help oppressors. Now, in the Islamic tradition, he takes this vow, whether it is for the Israelites or against the Israelites. That vow is missing in the in the in the Torah narrative, and as I said, in in the Torah narrative, it's a it's it's literally. I mean, the Israelites are on a crusade against the Egyptians, which is something that is remarkably different. Okay, 
So, the Quran then presents us with a different scene where the very next day he finds the same man that he helped that he the same man who he uh, helped out is having another fight with another Egyptian and there is a moment there that strikes Moses. Moses at first tells this man, you again, you're, you're, you're engaged in another fight? What's the deal? And you're, you're calling on me again to help you? He gets irritated by the situation. This is um, 18 and 19. But then Moses starts feeling the blood boiling in his head again about the way that the Israelite is being spoken to by the Egyptian fellow he's fighting with. And when he starts getting worked up, losing his temper again, the Egyptian tells Moses, oh, you, you want to kill me like you killed someone yesterday? You're a bad man. You you are proud of your strengths, and you want to be an oppressor. This is in one narrative. In another narrative, the one who says this is not the Egyptian, but the Israelite. That Moses actually gets angry at the Israelite, not at the Egyptian. Because the day before he vowed to God that he will stand by justice regardless of where it is, whether for Israelites or against Israelites. And that in this day when he sees the Israelite, the same Israelite having another fight with an Egyptian, this time he's upset with the Israelite. And the Israelite is the one that says, oh, are you gonna hit me like you hit someone yesterday and kill me? I don't know which is true because both have their, you know, both cite their own pieces of evidence one way or the other. But whether it is the Israelite who says it or the Egyptian who says it, the tradition is very interesting that this demoralizes Moses enormously. Because Moses realizes that he does have a temper problem. And having been raised in the palace, although ethnically he's an Israelite, but he was raised 
by the prophet's by sorry by the pharaoh's wife um spoiled everything came easy to him he had not learned to control his temper and although his mother had given him a consciousness about those who are oppressed and those who suffer he realizes that he lacks wisdom and the stories that we receive from the tradition tell us that Moses at that point retreats from the entire incident shortly after he retreats we're not sure how shortly after but shortly after he retreats someone comes to Moses and tells him that because now people are talking about there are rumors again there are cosas that he is in fact an Israelite and although he was raised in the Pharaoh's palace that he is in fact an Israelite and that the rumors reach the Pharaoh himself and then the traditions disagree as to whether those who were conspiring to kill Moses as punishment for killing an Egyptian in a fight with an Israelite was which racially outrageous by their standards how could an how could an Egyptian lose his fight in it lose his life in a fight with a lowly Israelites I mean this is exactly like blacks and whites um, so the, some traditions say that it was the noble men who were conspiring to have Moses killed others say that no it went up to the Pharaoh himself and that the Pharaoh himself said a member of my own palace defends an Israelite and kills an Egyptian and an Egyptian who works for me although I this kid was raised in my palace go ahead and kill him either way the news reaches Moses and he decides to run before he runs he does not have an opportunity to get anything from his belong in terms of his belongings as the pastor in other words he doesn't have money he doesn't have much but he takes off in the desert to the city of Median which was not under the control of the Pharaoh And note the way in 21 and 22, note the way that the Quran describes his flight. He is afraid, alone, constantly praying to Allah. Rabbi najini min al 
عسى ربي أن يهديني يهديني سواء السبيل he's constantly praying to Allah help me guide me save me from this horrible situation and then he arrives at Median or close to Median and By that time he's starving, he hasn't eaten in days, and he notices that there are two women standing around with their sheep, not competing with others to get their sheep to the water hole. There's a water hole, the, the, the shepherds take their sheep and their cattle to drink. And of course, it's, it's um, you know, you, you have to make sure that your sheep doesn't mix or your animals don't mix with the animals of others, other herders. So it's a physically intensive task. It's not, so, you know, easy because you have to make sure that your your herd is not going to mix with the herds of others and you have to fight your way to the water hole give your animals sufficient time to drink and then in some form of structure and order take the animals out and so these women are waiting on the side until all the other male herders are done and Moses understands that they are alone and that this is a huge task for two women. Normally you have a whole group of men involved in taking the herd to the water hole. And so Moses asked them, asked them what's wrong and they said, well, our father is old and we are alone. And Moses also hungry and exhausted takes it upon himself to help them and assists them in making sure that their animals get watered and there is a narrative that uh, he removes an old stone um, from an old blocked well and that that stone was extremely heavy and it needed 10 men to be removed, but he removed it by himself. And so the old water from a well that was an abandoned well, you know, whether you accept the story or not, it doesn't matter. The point is that one way or the other, he helps them get the job done. And after the job is done, he sits back and the comment is so succinct and so powerful after he helps him and he sits back to rest alone and they're gone on their way Moses is supplicating to God and saying Rabbi inni lima anzalta min al-khayri faqir this is 24 literally Allah I have nothing he, he's starving, 
he doesn't have any help and lima anzalta min al-khayr faqir i have nothing it's like saying but in a, in a rather remarkably eloquent way allah i need you be with me And at that point, one of these women, the younger girl, comes up and tamshi ala stihya. This is 25. Um, yeah, walking bashfully. Okay. Tamshi on his walking bashfully, um, and tells Moses, "My father wants to talk to you because my father wants to reward you for what you've done for us." Interestingly, you find these uh, discussions um, about. the women standing to the side and walking bashfully and these discussions are a really good example of how misogyny can affect interpretation one way or the other so you find in some sources like for instance ibn ashur he says um, that the fact that these women were out there with their herd is proof that women can work, can be employed to make a living, and is proof that uh, and he goes into that whether some you know what's what what's bashful or what causes bashfulness or doesn't cause bashfulness is determined by culture and circumstance and whether people are from Ahlul Badia or Ahlul Hadar and and so on and so forth, meaning people are from an urban center or rural center and so on. But at the same time, you find others who say. The fact that they were standing to the side and not wrestling with other men to water their herd is proof that it's better for women to be home and that if women need a hard job to be done, they should find a man to help them. And the fact that the woman who approaches Moses is described as tamshi ala istihya is proof that if a woman tries to talk to a man, she must do so only bashfully, and they insist that she covered her face with her arm like this. She wasn't wearing a veil. That this was proof that a woman, if she talks to a man, should cover her face. And of course, I mean, it is a perfect example of how an ideological stance colors the way you read the text, whether. 
pro-misogyny or less misogyny or you know it, it, it's it's um and it depends on what tafsir you open literally um and of course in the modern age i heard in in the good old days i once attended the khutbah where the khatib this was in egypt um the khatib went on and on about how look the women were standing to the side because they didn't want to mingle with the men and how the women of today they go and they crowd the men everywhere and there is no bus you get on in Egypt without women crowding men everywhere and there's no street in Egypt that you can walk on without women crowding men everywhere and there is no store you can go to without and even now he was saying this was back in the 80s and even now in Egypt you can't even go to a good cafe without women finding women sitting there trying to do shisha and you know look why don't they learn their morals from these women at the time of Moses that they were standing to the side instead of crowding men and look when the woman even approaches a man a woman approaches Moses to give him a message from her father she is bashful if it was a woman from today she wouldn't be bashful and she would probably say hey how are you how are you doing well he didn't say hey how are you how are you doing he, he said he said Arabic expressions Egyptian expressions uh, and stuff like that and you know he just went on and on and on. that was the entire khutbah and it just stayed with me and um and then, of course, you know, when, when you, you spend a lifetime with the Qur'an, and, yeah, I mean, it, but again, as we'll see, it all testifies to the power of qasas, meaning the power of narratives. What narrative do you tell? What narrative do you tell? It is all about the narrative. What time is it? So, then, the father of these two girls, and they're young, and remember, we have some stories tell us that Moses, I mean, we don't know how old Moses was exactly, but there are reports that say he was 30 years old, reports that say he was 40, others that say he was much younger. We don't know. But these, the older and the younger, are adolescents. And the younger girl proposes to the father that they hire Moses and that because Moses is strong and honest um, and again you know if you want misogynistic narratives there's a misogynistic narrative that says 
the father became very suspicious and he looked at his daughter and said, how do you know he is strong and honest? And uh, the girl promptly said, well, he is strong because he lifted that rock from, uh, from a well and he's honest because when we were walking back to Median, he told me walk behind me because I don't want the wind to blow against your dress and then I see the figure of your body. Um, misogyny will always creep in, you know. Um, but, I mean, it's not the, it's not the narrative that, you know, um, is everywhere. It, it's, it's in some type of theater and so on. Anyway, so then that develops into the father talking to Moses about marrying his daughter and he says, marry my daughter but you work for me for eight years and if you are able to complete ten years of work that would be out of the kindness of your heart. Now, of course, for Muslim scholars, and this is for the jurists, not for the theologians, this issue, this, this narrative became a very big deal because is this indentured serv service? Can the mahar be can, can you set the mahar to be a service instead of an actual sum? Um, when he said, work eight years for me, was that paid labor or unpaid labor? I mean, if in, in law, you, we go into these endless discussions about uh, you know, just a small reference like that, and in legal sources, it takes, it goes on forever. But law aside, we get the point, is that Moses is going to work, is going to marry the daughter, the younger daughter, and is going to work for this family for eight or ten years. And he ends up working for 10 years. There is a debate in the sources as to whether that man, the father of the girls, is a pro the prophet tribe or not. Um, some sources say that no, he's not the prophet tribe because by that time, tribe was dead. The prophet tribe was dead. Other sources says, no, he is the prophet tribe. I'm not going to pause at that. I'm just, this is just so you, you're aware of, you know, the issues. But Okay. Now, what is the significance? Well, hold on. So... After completing 10 years, as we know from earlier Sor, that Moses misses his mother and decides 
after spending 10 years, he, he talks to the father and talks to his wife, and they decide that he's going to go back to Egypt, unannounced, in secret, to try to see his mother and his sister. Interestingly, the sources don't say anything about his father. They just say, they just talk about his mother and his sister. Um, but before that, notice where the surah gets its name. Where where Moses meets, this is verse 25, Moses meets the father of the girls. And فَلَمَّ جَاءَهُ وَقَصَّ عَلَيْهِ الْقَصَصِ قَالَ لَا تَخَفْ نَجَوْتَ مِنَ الْقَوْمِ الظَّالِمِينَ This is 25. So Moses sits initially with the father and tells him his story. And the response of the father is, okay, you're safe. نَجَوْتَ مِنَ الْقَوْمِ الظَّالِمِينَ um, yeah, you have been saved from the wrongdoing people. No, it's only mean means unjust. You have been, you're safe from the unjust people. Now, note here, the surah gets its very title from that. And what type of narrative did Moses tell the father of the girls? What is emphasized in the tradition is that Moses is remarkably transparent and honest with the man and tells him everything. Tells him that he's an Israelite. Tells him that he was about his mother. Tells him about the fact that he was raised in the Pharaoh's palace. Tells him that he's pursued by the Pharaoh, which is a dangerous thing to say because that could put the father and his family at risk. Tells him he owes, owns nothing, and although he grew up in luxury, he has nothing, and tells him he's killed a man. During these 10 years, there is another form of 
salvation that Moses undergoes. He's safe in Median, which is not a strong city, with a family that doesn't is not rich and has no power. He is saved by sheer honesty and God's grace. And for 10 years, he works in a very lowly job as a sheep herder. Very low, very poor, but these 10 years that he spends away from the palace is what allows Moses to achieve another form of salvation, and that's to control his temper. Because Moses of Egypt was still a spoiled man, one who grew up in palaces, who had a very red-hot temper. But Moses that came back from Median is someone who had 10 years of worship, poverty, and hard work. And complete self-effacement. And it is that Moses that as he is going back to Egypt, it is extremely cold. And he and his family, their provisions have run out. And they are very cold and they are in desperate need for a fire. And for any human help. And at that point, we know that Moses sees the light. He tells his family, wait for me. I am going to go check out who's at this light. At a minimum, I can bring back the fire so we can build the fire so we can be warm. And this is the point where the most important transformation, act of transformation takes place in Moses' life. He steps into a valley, and in that valley is a tree, and at that tree is the luminous light, and at that light, God speaks to Moses. And we are introduced in Surah Al-Qasas, in earlier we are introduced into to this sort of very humanistic picture of Allah asking Moses, what do you have in your hand? And he says, it's a stick that I use for this, you know, and we've talked about this. But here we're introduced to something else, how remarkably human Moses is. So this is now at 32. 
when Moses first sees the, the, his stick transform into some form of snake, he becomes terrified and he runs away. And Allah calls him back. فَلَمَّا رَآهَا تَهْتَزُّكَ أَنَّهَا جَانٌ وَلَّا مُدْبِرًا وَلَمْ يُعَقِّبْ he, he ran away. This is um, 31. He ran away and Walam Yu'aqqab is like, uh, he, he just lost his mind. Ya Musa, aqbil wala takhaf, innaka minal aminin. Literally, Allah comforts him and say, come back, you're safe. And then the second miracle, the luminous hand, which we saw before, وَاضْمِمْ إِلَيْكَ جَنَاحَكَ مِنَ الرَّهْبِ This is 32. Let's see how they translated this one. Thank you very much. And draw thine arms to thyself against fear. You see this? And draw thine arms to thyself against fear. It's an interesting... Um, it's as if Moses is overwhelmed by the entire situation and he's told it's as if he's literally shaking and Allah is telling him put, put your arm next to you try to control your body it's like saying you know okay draw your arm close um And then it proceeds that Allah tells him, I'm sending you back to the Pharaoh to confront the Pharaoh. Moses tells, responds that I've killed an Egyptian and these people might kill me. Allah says, don't worry, don't be scared, I'm with you. He says, I want my brother to help me. My brother is more eloquent than I am. And Allah grants that wish. And Allah tells him, ultimately you will be victorious. Now, This time, however, this time, when we are, ex what are we expecting to happen next? We're expecting that Moses is going to go back, he's going to talk to the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh is going to call the magicians, and there is going to be the confrontation. Surah Al-Qasas surprises us, though. Surah Al-Qasas doesn't tell us the story of the confrontation with the magicians. Rather, it says, فَلَمَّ جَاءَهُمْ مُوسَى بِآيَاتِنَا بَيِّنَاتِ قَالُوا مَا هَذَا إِلَّا سِحْرٌ مُسْفْطَرًا وَمَا سَمِعْنَا بِهَذَا فِي آبَائِنَا الْأَوَّلِينَ This is 36. Uh, 
when Moses, Qasas tells you, when Moses comes to them with the message, they say, this is nothing but um, sorcery. And we've never heard this from our earlier generations. Surah Al-Qasas skips over the confrontation with the magicians and instead focuses your attention to competing narratives taking on taking place, they are saying, Moses, we have a narrative that goes back to our ancestors. Remember, these are the ancient Egyptians. The ancient Egyptians, their mythology, their qasas about who is the god from where and who descends from what and all of that is very important. And the idea that there's a God who will not share his divinity with any ruler or with any race is something unheard of. He's insisting on his narrative, which they call absurd because this is not the inherited narrative that they know. And the Pharaoh responds to Moses' narrative with theater. He brings his minister, his prime minister, which was always called Haman. Haman is not a name of a person, it's a name of a position. And he says, build, build me a tower out of mud. The importance of a tower out of mud, that means it wasn't that high. If it was out of hard rock like the pyramids, it would be much higher. But a tower out of mud, it means it was theatrical. He, he wanted to do the theatrical act of ascending a relatively short tower, looking upon the sky and say, I don't see anything. Case closed. So then we know we know what is going to transpire is that ultimately then the Quran makes a quick reference in Surah Al-Qasas to the confrontation with Pharaoh not the confrontation with the magicians or the sorcerers, but with Pharaoh directly and the fate of, of Pharaoh and his soldiers. Several things. 
وَاسْتَكْبَرَ هُوَ وَجُنُودُهُ فِي الْأَرْضِ بِغَيْرِ الْحَقِّ وَظَنُّوا أَنَّهُمْ إِلَيْنَا لَا يُرْجَعُونَ This is 39. فَأَخَذْنَاهُ وَجُنُودُهُ فَنَبَذْنَاهُمْ فِي الْيَمْ فَانْظُرْ كَيْفَ كَانَ عَاقِبَةُ الظَّالِمِينَ وَجَعَلْنَاهُمْ أَئِمَّةً يَدْعُونَ إِلَى النَّارِ وَيَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ لَا يُنْصَرُونَ 41. وَاتَّبَعْنَاهُمْ فِي هَذِهِ الدُّنْيَا لَعْنَةً وَيَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ هُمْ مِنَ الْمَقْبُوحِينَ 42 So, pause here for a second. And we made them imams calling unto fire. What is that? What does that mean? وَجَعَنَّاهُمْ أَئِمَّ يَدْعُونَ إِلَى النَّارِ We've made them imams calling unto fire. But not only that, and they are pursued by a curse, and in the hereafter they are among the maqbuhin, among the truly ugly. You reflect upon this and you quickly realize that this is the entire point. Pharaoh and his soldiers are a symbol, are a symbol for a type of arrogance and a type of oppression that is thoroughly repugnant to God. <laughs> Systematic oppression of the disempowered. It is, has nothing to do with logic. It has nothing to do with reason. It has everything to do with dominance of a class over another, a sense of entitlement, and the mythologies, the narrative that justify and legitimate the oppression of that class towards others. And in this case, class oppression is intermingled with racial oppression. Every racist is following the, the imama of the pharaoh. And every arrogant classist 
who believes that they are a different class of people. So when I work on human trafficking, especially, especially labor trafficking, you have always a class of people that exploit another class. But what is remarkable is how amazingly entitled they feel to the exploitation they undertake. When you tell them, how could you have these people work on rubber plantations for 18 hours a day, paying them as little as you pay them? Often their children can't afford to go to school, so they have to work in the rubber plantations. These are the rubber plantations that make our tires. All our tires are use these awful, awful, awful rubber plantations. And companies tell you, well, you know, if, the, if it wasn't that, they would starve. What are you complaining about? They, this is the type of life they're born to do, and the idea that you are calling them is shocking to them. This is far, I mean, this is not some remote this is ever present in our life, all the time, everywhere. If you ever seen rich people, I've actually, there are some cases here in California where some rich people brought servant girls from Egypt or the Philippines or there was a case of Sri Lankan and they had the, the girls uh, live, the maid, live in the garage, uh, taking care of their children, cleaning the house, doing the cooking, and they were prosecuted for human trafficking in California. And I, I testified as an expert in a few of these cases. And it's amazing. I mean, the, the family, the idea that you're coming and saying, how could you? It's truly a complete shock to them. What do you mean we're not entitled to, to treat the, that person that way? But here's the thing. No racism, no institution of racism, no institution of human trafficking, no institution of oppressive classism exists without narratives that legitimate these institutions and render them natural and entirely acceptable. It reminds the Prophet that expect the reaction, one, it, it states the obvious. You weren't there. And Allah is telling you these castles, although you weren't there, because Allah 
is communicating a critical point. And that don't bother with the fact that you hear people say, well, you, Muhammad, why haven't you been given a miracle like Moses? Because that's not the point. فَإِنْ لَمْ يَسْتَجِيبُ لَكَ فَعْلَمْ أَنَّمَا يَتَّبَعُونَ أَهْوَاءَهُمْ وَمَنْ أَضَلُّ مِمَّنْ اتَّبَعَ أَهْوَاهُ بِغَيْرُ هُدَى مِنَ اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَهْدِي قَوْمَ الظَّالِمِينَ When they don't answer you, they don't respond to you, know that they follow their whims. It is about their whims, answering to their compulsions, to their own passions. I'm going to break for Maghrib in, in, in one minute. And it tells the Prophet that as you confront your people, you will be exposed to another form of Qasas. What is this Qasas? It's Lahu. Lahu. Backbiting and slander and chitter chatter. And your attitude towards this Lahu should be what? To turn away and say, Lana amalun amaluna. وَلَكُمْ أَعْمَالُكُمْ سَلَامٌ عَلَيْكُمْ لَا نَبْتَغِ الْجَاهِلِينَ You have your deeds, we have our deeds, peace upon you. This is 55. We don't follow the ignorant. Don't get sucked in responding to what we call today um, um, false uh, what is it? Accusations? No. Rumors. No. Rumors. Fake news. Fake news. <laughs> Don't get sucked into responding to fake news. That's the level. But then comes the doozy. إِنَّكَ لَا تَهْدِي مَنْ أَحْبَبْتْ وَلَكِنَّ اللَّهَ مَهْدِي مَنْ يَشَاءْ وَهُوَ أَعْلَمُ بِالْمُهْتَدِينَ 56. And remember, Muhammad, you don't guide who you love. Allah guides whoever Allah wishes to guide. 
So finally, after this introduction about the Pharaoh and about oppression and about standing up with principle and all of that, it brings it full circle to tell the Prophet and about your uncle who I know your heart is bleeding for remember it's not up to you forget that okay let's take a breather it's maghrib we'll break fast and but there will be no iftar no time for iftar <laughs> you do iftar as, a, as, as the halakha continues so you know they had to do put up with much more than we did than we do so it's not much of a sacrifice okay 56 إنك لا تهدي من أحببت ولكن الله يهدي من يشاء وهو أعلم بالمهتدين وقالوا إن اتبع الهدى معك نتخطف من أرضنا أولم نمكن لهم حرما آمنا يجبى إليه الثمرات كل شيء, كل شيء رزقا من لدنا ولكن أكثرهم لا يعلمون وكم أهلكنا من قرية بطرت معيشتها فتلك مساكنهم لم تسكن من بعدهم إلا قليلا وكنا نحن الوارثين So after Allah reminds the Prophet again that guidance is not up to him and no matter how much he wants certain people guided it's still not up to him. Verse 57 that some Meccans like Al-Harith bin Uthman bin Nufal Al-Harith um, bin Uthman bin Nufal Al-Qurashi would tell the Prophet we know that you are truthful and we know that you don't lie and we know that this Quran is not human. But we can't follow you for very practical reasons. If we follow you, the financial implications in our language today, the geopolitical implications would be uh, numerous. We would it would be a serious financial blow. In fact, the Arabs around us might become hostile to us and might 
start targeting us. And again, you can't help but think this is yet another narrative. And think of how often in our modern world we hear people say, yes, we know what the right thing is, but we can't because superpowers, because oil politics, because banking and finance policies, because the, the, the uh, national currency and how, how much it's worth, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala simply answers this and says, it was the obvious point, that <clears throat> whatever blessings you have currently is from Allah. And so many before you, when Allah wished, the blessings have been withdrawn and their entire civilization crumbled. And their abandoned homes is the best testament to that. And then at verse then we, verse 62, um, sorry, from 60 to 70, Allah reminds Muslims that whatever blessings we enjoy on earth is passing and in the hereafter all the narratives that we relied on as philosophies for our existence become a form of infighting between the authors of these narratives. And this is particularly in the concept of Ghuwaya. Tempting when Hawaii is any form of temptation that is obtained through speech. If I convince you of something, of a way of life that is wrong, 
that's Ruaya. If I convince you to commit a sin, that's Ruaya. If I convince you to betray someone, including betray yourself, that's Ruaya. It's any narrative that leads you astray is a Ruaya. So in the year after, those, the obvious point that we've encountered repeatedly in the Quran is that these narratives becomes a form of testimony and witnessing against one another. Okay. And from 70 to 75, Allah once again reminds human beings of Allah's power that how, how volatile and vulnerable our existence is. And that in fact, it takes Allah's continuing act of creation to sustain us until we get to 76, the story of Karun. So we have the story of Moses, then an interlude where first Allah addresses the Meccan context, and then from the Meccan context to more the broader context of human existence, and then comes back to the story of Karun. And as we said, that Karun is, was reportedly either Moses' cousin or a relative. Um, and some reports say that he was just a follower, not even a cousin or a relative. And the thing about Karun is that he was one, he was a, a follower of Moses for a period of time. And after Pharaoh and the Egyptians are destroyed, um, according to some narrations, Karun settles back in Egypt. But this time, the Egyptian army has been destroyed, and the Israelites are able to establish a very different life for themselves in Egypt than they were able to do before. Other reports say that Karun did not settle in Egypt, but settled closer to Palestine in the lands of the Canaanites, the Canaanites. Anyway, Karun, we are, some reports say that he was a sorcerer, not very likely. Other reports say that he had invented some technologically advanced way to farm. We don't know what that, what it was. But whatever it was, it made him extremely wealthy. And as his business succeeded, he got richer and richer. And became effectively like a feudal lord. Um, eventually, everyone in the, in the area worked for him. Um, 
and eventually he rebelled against Moses and said that I no longer follow Moses and I no longer own Moses allegiance or financial support. There is among the Qasas about Karun and Moses is that when Moses hears that Karun has broke ranks, Moses intends to go back and confront Karun and demand that he pay his share of taxes to Moses. Karun knows that Moses is coming and so he brings a prostitute and he pays her to once once Moses arrives to stand up and say that Moses had sex with her and did not pay her and of course the scandal the of Moses committing adultery uh, which according to Jewish law at the time meant stoning although it's not clear what the rules of evidence at, the, at that time was but anyway so the plot goes as planned and Moses arrives and the woman stands up and she she says that Moses had sex with her and that he did not pay her and Moses denies, vehemently denies the charges and the scandal is very traumatic upon Moses until they get to a point where Moses tells her, okay, swear upon may your soul be cursed if you are lying uh, that in fact that I did have sex with you. And then she refuses to swear upon her soul, may, may her soul be cursed and says, okay, well, actually, she comes clean at that point and says that Karun paid me to, to say this. A Karun reacts in a very typically arrogant way. He says, well, I'm sure that Moses paid you to, to come up with this entire act. Um, so, you know, he does what tyrant, all tyrants and arrogant people do. He just throws back the accusation uh, at her and Moses this time. And that that was the incident after which Allah decides to destroy Karun. Um, interestingly, there is an area in Egypt called Buhirat Karun um, and there is a palace right next, a pharaonic palace right next to Buhirat Karun, the, the, the Sea of Karun. Um, and that palace, if, if you visited, it's really very interesting because um, uh, it, it seems like the palace was sunk underwater for a period of time. You can clearly look at the walls and see where the water had submerged the palace, but then the water retreated. And, and there is a village that they uncovered 
right next to the palace. And the village, they found an inscription that said the village of Karun. Um, a village of very, very, very humble homes uh, next to this, um, you know, clearly well-off palace. Interestingly, I, when I visited it, the uh, people who, sh the, the, it's close to visitors, so you only you have to you can only visit it if you have a wasta, if you have um, a connection. And the people who took me around told me that the Ministry of um, Egyptian um, whatever artifacts uh, told them to not say that this palace belonged to Karun uh, because they did not want to either confirm or deny the Quranic narrative. That's it. Very interesting. Um, I have no idea why. Uh, I don't know. I have, of course, I, you know, I don't know. I asked if they dated it. And um, it goes back, I think he said something to the AIDS Egyptian family, which is supposed to be around the time of Moses. Uh, so if you ever go to Fayyum and you go to Hirat Karun, I don't know if that place is open, but if it's not open, I'm sure you can bribe someone and go in any way. Uh, that's the way everything works over there, unfortunately. Okay. And this, of course, the destruction of Karun is verse 81 and when Karun Karun was known for being flashy and would display his wealth and that people envied him um, for his enormous wealth and the Quranic comment that after his destruction وَأَصْبَحَ الَّذِينَ تَمَنَّوا مَكَانَهُ بِالْأَمْسِ يَقُولُونَ وَيْكَأَنَّ اللَّهَ يَبْسُطُ الرِّزْقَ لِمَنْ يَشَاءَ مِنْ عِبَادِهِ وَاقْدُمْ لَوْلَا أَنْ مَنَّ اللَّهَ عَلَيْنَا لَخَصَفَ بِنَا وَيْكَأَنَّ لَا يُفْلِحُ الْكَافِرُونَ um, This is 82. Uh, so I, I was trying to see how they translated Waika'anna. They just translated it uh, as alas. Um, so the morning after his destruction, people said, Alas, it seems God outspreads and straightens provisions for whomsoever God wills among God's servants. Had God not been gracious to us, God would have caused us to be engulfed 
as well, alas, it seems that disbelievers will not prosper. The only reason I pause at this is that expression, waika'anna, um, it, it's a, this is the only time that the Quran uses that expression, and it's an, grammatically very interesting. It, 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 it's, it expresses surprise, and at the same time, um, like marveling and saying, it, it's it's what you would say if you're trying to say, we've seen the proof of. Uh, interestingly, the origins of Waika'anna goes back to two letters, Wow and Yeah, we. Or way, way, um, and I realized that I've heard in colloquial Arabic, not among Egyptians, but I think among Gulfies. I'm not sure, but I've heard people say we alena, um, which Syrians, is huh? Syrians, Syrians say we alena. Syrians say that too. There's a noun. Like, yeah. Lamb, lamb, willy, willy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's 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 interesting how language moves, and it, that that goes back to the same way ka'anna. Yeah. Uh, especially the we, that wow, yeah. Some Farsi dialects why? also say way, 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 way. Why or why, why, why? Um. Okay, and تلك الدار الآخرة نجعلها للذين لا يريدون علوا في الأرض ولا فسادا والعاقبة للمتقين من جاء بالحسنة فله خير منها ومن جاء بالسيئة فلا يجزى الذين عملوا السيئات إلا ما كانوا يعملون تلك الدار الآخرة نجعلها للذين لا يريدون علوا في الأرض ولا فسادا This is 83 This is the abode of the hereafter. It is for those who do not desire dominance upon the earth, nor corruption. When Al-Fadil bin Ayyad read this verse, he commented on it, a comment that I always loved, he said, which means all form of um, irrational hopefulness is now gone. And what my, what he means by this is that those who believe 
that they can be Muslim and yet seek to dominate and control or exploit or oppress others. They have no hope. Al-Fudil bin Ayyad said this in response directly to Murji'ah, who believed that whoever said the Shahada will eventually go to heaven. And Al-Fudil bin Ayyad is simply commenting, saying, it's, it's nonsense. Allah makes clear that the Dar al-Akhirah is not for those who seek to dominate others, to those who seek to oppress others, or those who seek to corrupt the earth or do not care about corrupting the earth, with all the implications of that. Because remember how the surah starts. It tells us about Pharaoh who is oppressing and killing and raping and forcing people into classist systems and racial systems, systems of oppression, and systems where even women have to prostitute themselves to survive. And Allah comments about all of this and says, he's, he's a corrupter. He's a mufsid from Ard. The end of the surah brings us back full circle and says, the hereafter, salvation is not for those who do not understand the ugliness of this path. Now, so step back Surah Al-Qasas, and before we summarize the entire Surah, historically, Surah Al-Qasas, when it was revealed, several of the Muslims rushed to the Prophet. And remember, we discussed at the historical juncture, and they said, Surah, this, this revelation will only make Quraysh escalate its angst against us. It will only make Quraysh escalate its persecution of us. Because it was a resounding condemnation of the Pharaoh model and the model of classism and superior tribes and inferior tribes, superior races and inferior races, superior ethnicities and inferior ethnicities. And they understood, but at the same time, 
the Prophet ﷺ responds to this and say, وَمَا عَلَيَّ هُدَاهُمْ I don't, I, it's not up to me who gets guided or not. It's like you're saying, I, I understand, but this is the message. And at the same time, remember, this is right before Surah Al-Isra. We're going to get a qasas, a narrative, that is going to challenge the most hardened believers a narrative about ascending to the heavens and visiting the Aqsa Mosque and coming back. But yet, our entire existence is anchored in other Qasas. It is the Qasas of the ancestors, the Qasas of traditions, the Qasas of people we've never met, we've never seen, but it is we who make the moral decision which causes to accept and which causes to reject. There is causes that leads people to dominate and control other people and even prostitute their women and sexually assault them. And there are causes that lead to absolute of acts of human kindness. You are starving and you help two lonely women for absolutely no return. And then you sit back alone, lonely, destitute and say, Allah, I need you. There are causes a weak man tells another weak man that leads to a marriage and a process of liberation where you grow in the desert for 10 years. There is the Qasas of Moses' mother telling her son that raises his consciousness about who he really is. And there is also the tribal and ignorant Qasas where this man killed an Egyptian, even if unintentionally, let's get him. There is the Qasas of Pharaoh putting on a show. I'm going to build a tower, drive on the tower. I don't see a god. Case closed. And there is a Qasas where you, in a counter narrative, where you say, by what right? Do you claim divinity to yourself? We are all equal before the one God. Note that not only the Isra is going to involve one leap in, narr in, in narratives or in narration, but once the Hijra takes place, Medina, that little city-state, fighting battles is only a small percentage of the war. It's not fight, just fighting battles, but it is the war of information 
and narratives that is either going to win the hearts of the tribes that you've never encountered in battle or that are going to make them turn against you and ally against you. Note that the most important narrative in Surah Al-Qasas is the narrative of the strength required to overcome the various forms of despotism. Moses had to confront, well, it starts with his mother. His mother had to confront the despotism of a completely irrational system that forced the separation between, between her and her son and had to negotiate with that despotism. Moses then had to maintain himself against the despotism and the corruptions of luxury in a corrupt circumstance in the palace of the Pharaoh. He had to struggle against his own volatile nature, his short temper, having been grow, having been spoiled growing up. He had to struggle against the despotism of racism. And the despotism that separated him between him between between that separated him from his mother. But even after Moses defeats the Pharaoh, he will enter a new phase of struggle that the Quran will remind the Prophet of again and again. And that is his struggle against the mythology and the ignorance of his own followers who will worship the calf, who will gravitate back to idol worship, who themselves will adopt racist attitudes towards the Canaanites, who will give Moses a very hard time so the struggles don't end. Now, why Moses? Why tell the prophet the story of Moses in this detail at this point in his life? Because of all the prophets, the one who is called upon to be a prophet and a statesman and a military leader, precisely like, this is exactly what Moses was, a statesman, a military leader, a prophet, 
And that was exactly what the Prophet Muhammad was going to have to do. So of all the Prophets, the model that is closest to him is in fact Musa. But of course the Prophet sitting in Mecca at that time had no idea and no clue. And so he is receiving this revelation, studying it. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows what is in store for him. The dhikr for this ayah is verse 83, which is the crux and the heart of this entire surah. Tilka darul akhirah. نجعلها للذين لا يريدون علوا في الأرض ولا فسادا والعاقبة للمتقين والحمد لله رب العالمين